Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. An interesting urban policy story in recent years has been the reinvigoration of city centers. Parts of cities across the country, from Cleveland to Los Angeles and back to D.C., are on the comeback. Some neighborhoods that have been on the decline are seeing an influx of new residents and businesses, with property values on the rise. But this urban renewal is definitely not shared everywhere. Across America, there are areas that find themselves on the periphery of economic recovery that are being left behind the broader advancement in our country. The question is, what should we be doing to support those places to better realize the American dream? One answer is a brand new government initiative that garnered the blessings of congressional Democrats, Republicans, and President Trump. It's called Opportunity Zones, and it has the potential to become our nation's largest economic development initiative to date. But don't just take it from me. Senators Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, and Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, led the Opportunity Zone legislative effort and say that Opportunity Zones will lift up communities that need an economic boost. We celebrate the success of this economy without any question, but the reality of it is that there are pockets in this nation where the recovery has been uneven and the Opportunity Zone legislation supported by the president will have a positive impact, a powerful impact in communities that are distressed. It creates a powerful tool Uh, for drawing capital off the sidelines and getting it into low-income communities. We know that genius is equally distributed in the United States of America, but capital is not. The senators make these opportunity zones sound pretty great, but how exactly would they work? And what does it even mean to be an opportunity zone? Let's break it down into three way oversimplified steps. Step one, choose opportunity zones. Earlier this year, governors took a look at low-income communities in their states and got to choose specific places to become opportunity zones. For the next 10 years, there will be about 8,700 opportunity zones across the country. That's 12% of all census tracts in the U.S. Step two, get those dollars. So once a community becomes an opportunity zone, it means that corporations and individuals can now invest in funds targeted to these specific areas and receive significant tax breaks in return if they leave their money there for 10 years or more. Step three, drive broad-based growth. With these incentives, opportunity zones may encourage investments in new businesses and commercial projects in low-income communities that can help residents and provide return on investment. Urban Institute expert Brett Theodos has been studying this initiative, and he says it's all about jumpstarting economic activity. The theory is that if communities are lacking access to capital as the reason why, or at least a reason why they're struggling economically, you know, if these are the communities where we're lacking employment opportunities, we're lacking retail opportunities, there's not a place to buy groceries, there's not a place to buy gas, these kind of communities, whether urban or rural, Camden or Appalachia, they just need economic activity. And so the logic is, if we can get capital flowing to those communities that don't have access to it, then they can benefit. 
To understand how Opportunity Zones are different from other programs, it helps to look back at how the federal government has supported community development in the past. It is harder and harder to live the good life in American cities today. New experiments are already going on. It will be the task of your generation to make the American city a place where future generations will come not only to live, but to live the good life. President Lyndon Johnson launched the Model Cities program in 1966, a federal effort to improve blighted neighborhoods, an approach that some would say was too heavy-handed. Here's Brett. Tearing down whole neighborhoods, putting up freeways without community voice and participation, not clear who's benefiting along the way. But a very robust role of federal government in doing community development. There was a reaction to that. And you get to the Nixon administration and we have the community development block grant. The logic is the federal government actually doesn't know best what communities need. Local government knows best. So we need to get out of the way as a federal government and we need to give our money to local governments. You fast forward some more and you get into the Carter administration and you have urban development action grants. And what you have there is actually it's the private sector that is the one that should be helping us to understand what kind of activity needs to come to a given community. And you fast forward again to the Clinton administration and you have the new market tax credit and enterprise zones. It's the most significant ever effort ever to help hard-pressed areas, both rural and urban, to lift themselves up through private investment and entrepreneurship. If we can get people to put money into really depressed areas, all the rest of America will share part of the risk by giving them a tax credit to do it. And it's a darn good investment. What you have in those environments, especially with new markets, well, really with both of them, is private actors now deciding what kind of investments are going to happen. And there's not the federal role of underwriting projects even. So it's a step in our progression of the federal government giving away control first to local government and now to private actors in deciding how to use federal government resources. And that brings us to the Trump administration, which signed Opportunity Zones into law as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act early in 2018. Opportunity Zones are different because there's no intermediary. There's nothing like a community development entity in new markets or a state housing finance agency in the low-income housing tax credit. There's very limited restrictions on what types of investments can be made under this incentive. There's very limited invest, uh, restriction with respect to what kinds of actors can benefit from making these types of investments. In many ways, this, this is different from other, you know, quote unquote, programs that we've seen. This is something you can claim on your taxes. Um, and in that sense, it's a lot more wide open than other types of community and economic development programs that we've seen from the federal level. So opportunity zones have more private sector involvement than past development programs and they are open to a broader range of investments that will ultimately take shape all across the U.S. Urban Institute expert Brady Meixel has also been studying opportunity zones. You see these tracks in all 50 states. Uh, you see them you know, in rural areas, suburban areas, urban areas, 
You also see them on tribal lands. So you have such a wide range of potential options um, of where these investments could be flowing. They span you know, all geographies across the country. Across all these geographies, there's one type of investment that opportunity zones are most likely to draw, real estate. That's because the biggest tax benefits of the Opportunity Zone initiative kick in after 10 years, and real estate investors tend to be more amenable to this type of timeline. So how were these Opportunity Zones picked, and were the right places chosen? Ultimately, it was up to each state's governor, or in the case of Washington, D.C., its mayor, to nominate an area for designation. Brett and Brady looked at what types of communities these leaders ended up selecting as Opportunity Zones. Here's Brett on what they found. It was the case that the zones that were selected were somewhat lower income, had somewhat lower homeownership rates on average, were somewhat less white, somewhat higher unemployment rates, somewhat lower home values. In short, we've got some zones that are really disinvested communities, whether that's situated in rural areas, places that don't have a gas station and a Walmart and a grocery store, and similarly in urban areas. But we also have tracks in Boston, in DC, in Atlanta, in Seattle, in New York City that have already gentrified and already accessing lots of capital. One track that stands out is Central Berkeley, across from Cal Berkeley, where homes sell for a million dollars. That also was picked. So there's a real range of tracks in the end that are eligible for the incentive. Brett and Brady saw that some opportunity zones actually may not be struggling economically. They checked into how many opportunity zones are already gentrifying and already on the receiving end of plenty of capital and how that could actually undermine the goal of helping people who could benefit the most from additional investment. Based on our estimates, about 2.7% of the tracks picked are at risk of gentrification or have seen large socioeconomic change in the past decade. And in those communities, uh, you know, seeing a big influx of capital without a lot of restraints uh, on what you do with that capital, besides a few sin businesses that are excluded, you could see that capital being used to take, you know, what's prior been affordable housing and turned it into, you know, luxury market rate condos. And there's no restriction preventing that from happening in, in the current law. So how are we going to know whether opportunity zones are really producing new economic activity where it's needed most? Some of that depends on the Internal Revenue Service, which will oversee this new initiative. The IRS hasn't yet finalized their rules as to how it will work and what investors will be required to report. But here's Brett on what to watch for. So a lot will depend on what IRS decides to require reported to them and what they decide to make available to the rest of us. And so the kind of things that we want to know, that I want to know, are where funds exist, who is investing in those funds, how much those investments are, where those funds are deploying their capital, specifically to what businesses with what addresses, and what amounts, and for what basic project type or purpose. So a key way to think about the success of Opportunity Zones is this. If investors weren't receiving incentives to fund projects there, would dollars be pouring in anyway? If investment is already there, then maybe a federal incentive isn't as necessary. There are two other key players besides investors that can contribute to the impact of the Opportunity Zones, local government and philanthropic organizations. 
Here's Brett on one thing that these players can do to help Opportunity Zones. So since the investments coming through these incentives are likely to be so market-driven, one thing that local government and philanthropy could do is step forward and have some sort of loan loss reserve or guarantee or other risk mitigation strategy. Indeed, we've seen this with the Kreisky and Rockefeller Foundations coming forward with a combined $25 million each pool where they're going to be exploring how they can help mitigate risk in truly community development-oriented investments that flow through opportunity funds. It's not like new money is somehow being created at local government now that the Opportunity Zone incentive exists, but it is to say that there can be a coordinated strategy. The real question is, 10 years from now, how will we know if Opportunity Zones have gotten a maximum return on investment in community development? How will we know if this was a good idea? Here's Brady on some ways to measure their success. So I think at the local level, what you're looking for is a bolstered tax base, increased local earnings, and limited displacement. At the federal level, uh, you're hoping that, you know, amongst all this investment through the tax code, uh, that you're seeing projects being funded that were not that would not have occurred without without the opportunities on incentive being in place. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, Opportunity Zones represent an important new tool in the Economic Development Toolkit. There are now 8,700 brand new Opportunity Zones across the country focused on bringing capital into disinvested communities. They're open to a broad range of investors and projects. Two, a key way to measure the success of Opportunity Zones is by asking if investors weren't receiving incentives to fund projects there, would investment be happening anyway? The IRS will be determining what information investors will be asked to report on projects. Without collecting the right data, it will be hard to answer that question and know the real impact of this initiative. And three, one way that local government and philanthropic actors can assist in making this initiative successful is helping mitigate risk for investors to support communities truly in need of investment. So that's our show. Thanks again to Brett Theodos and Brady Mikesell. If you like the show, tell your friends. We appreciate the support of listeners like you and need your help connecting us to other smart, policy-minded folks out there. And please take a few seconds to rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks to our editor, Riley Byrne, and to Katie Smith, Kate Villarreal, and Dan Fowler for all their help. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.